Everyone, welcome to the Torvis Podcast. I got a special podcast uh, for you all. I'm joined by my very good friend, professional wrestler, all around amazing human being, Mike Mazursky, all the way from back east, and uh, otherwise known as John Atlas. And he is here. So, John, hey, uh, John, I'm gonna say I'm already in your wrestling thing. Mike, why don't you do a promo for me? Like, how would you enter? How would you get on the camera? And what would you say? Like, just to just to blow it up. It's me, the relentless John Atlas, coming in. 6'2", 225 pounds, solid muscle. Mr. Can't Stop, Won't Stop, all the way to the top. There we go. Love it. So Mike and I have known each other for uh, a long time. We started bouncing together way back when. Uh, He has a fascinating story that I want to share with you. Uh, One that could be made a movie. I already told him that before the the cameras came on. And uh, before we get into that, let's just start, because this episode is going to be about professional wrestling, specifically in the 1980s. I'm going to throw some trivia at Mike to see if he gets it. And uh, I mean, a lot of us grew up with uh, the WWF in the 1980s, Stampede Wrestling. Uh, Some really great stuff came out of that era, especially for pro wrestling. I would say the 80s is what blew it up. I mean, you know, you had the 50s, 60s and 70s. It was working away. But when the 80s hit, that was the era. So, Mike, let's let's just start. Like, how did you what's your fascination wrestling and how did it start with you? I was probably five. I was five years old and I was, I had gone to the movie store with my mom and I was just looking around the movie store and I happened to stumble across the wrestling section and I saw Hulk Hogan on the cover and I saw this big guy in a yellow shirt, yellow and red shirt, huge muscles. And I was like, Oh, okay. What is this about? And I wanted to have it. And my mom was like, no, you can't watch that. And I like, through a temper tantrum because I wanted to rent the movie and she wouldn't let me. And then she ended up, you know, taking me by the ear, taking me home. Um, and then she put me down for a nap, but she ended up going back and getting the video, renting the video for me and then coming back. And ever since I saw it, I was hooked. Awesome. And so during that time was Hulk Hogan, like your favorite, just like most kids. Yeah, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan was my guy. Uh, as a kid growing up, uh, I ate my vitamins, said my prayers, and you know I, I was doing push-ups, sit-ups. I was a Hulkamaniac through and through. So, did you end up watching any other kind of wrestling promotions like Stampede Wrestling or anything like that? I was so naive to anything else wrestling related. I was just WWF or WWE uh-huh. um, all the way, probably until like. Like in the in the late '90s, I knew of WCW, but like I didn't really 
I I didn't know the history of WCW or the NWA or AWA or anything like that. I was, because all I got uh, growing up was WWF. That's all that was broadcasted. And so how does someone get into professional wrestling? I mean, I kind of know the story, but most people don't. It's like, do you just answer an ad in the paper or like what, what does it entail? Um, I was lucky enough at the time when I was looking into it. So like there's different avenues you can go into looking into getting trained to become a professional wrestler. The way I did it was I took the same approach I did uh, with football. And uh, when I was getting recruited to go to university, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to the university where I was going to be the best coached at my position that would get me ready for the next level of let's professional football. Um, so I took the same approach with wrestling. Am I going to go to a guy that hasn't really been where I want to go or hasn't really done what I want to do and get, and just fork over money to him? Or am I going to go to a guy like a Lance Storm who's been trained, who's been to the WWE, been to WCW, mm-hmm. uh, been to the top, uh, former intercontinental champion, former tag team champion, um, and, and learn from a guy like him. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up uh, looking at his website and I went down there uh, to go visit just to make sure it was legit. Uh, because you hear a bunch of, like you hear stories all the time of people saying they'll train you, um, but it's not really legit. Like some other person will come in and train you. Uh, but it was great because it was Lance Storm, hand, hands-on training. He was in He was in the training classes with you every day, four hours a day. What's his training uh, school called and where is it? Uh, It was, it was called storm wrestling Academy. It recently just shut down. Uh, He, because he, he shut down because he took a job with WWE um, and he was going to be on the road a lot. And then he, he couldn't train, but he was hands down one of the best trainers uh, he was in the ring with us. The first two weeks, it was awesome because it was like a weeding out period. Um, so it's, he, he's just going to run you to the ground for the first two weeks to see like who's in shape uh, and who, who who can handle it. And if you're not in shape, you know, a lot of people ended up quitting. So my class started with 25 kids. Yeah. Or there's, yeah. 20, there's 25 of us. By the end of the class, there were seven. Wow. Yeah. So you ended up taking that training and then you started, you're on the uh, independent circuit doing stuff back East. Um, but you ended up going down to the WWE um, uh, trial center or what's it called? Uh, the WWE performance center. Yeah. So tell me about that. W- what was that like? Oh my God. That was insane. Uh, it's the, it's the Mecca for pro wrestling. It's, it's the place where you want to be if you want to when you want to become a professional wrestler um they have everything and anything there they have seven uh i think it's six six rings um with coaches that you watch growing up on tv um and just state-of-the-art facility with the top of the line uh, workout equipment top of the line coaches nutritionists um they had a promo room which was like a green room where you you just go and cut promos and that's where talents go like for two hours of a day every day 
you go and you cut promos. Mm -hmm. It's like anything. Oh, it's like it's in a way like jujitsu. The only way you're going to get better at it is if you consistently do it again and again and again. Uh, Same thing with promos. um, Same thing with wrestling. The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And you're down there with coaches that they want to see what you have and they want to see you at your best. So can a wrestler today uh, just get through wrestling just being a wrestler or do you have to be able to cut promos? You have to be able to talk. Um, it's it, it comes with the package. For me, the total package is you have to, one, you, you have to have a look. Two, you have to be able to cut a promo. Um, and three is like how... How can you engage the audience? How does the audience uh, react with you? And how do you react with them? And have you been, uh, so are you a heel right now? Or are you a baby face? What are you? I'm, I'm a baby face, but like I, I'm trying right now. Like, so when I first started wrestling, I wrestled under the Playboy moniker. Yeah. I used to be uh, kind of like a throwback to a ravishing Rick Rude. And that's how I kind of got my feet wet and I was comfortable doing that. Um, but now I've been, I, I've changed that and I've gone to the relentless John Atlas, uh, just kind of going to more my true to life story and just, just be me, just go out there and, you know, let my true to life story kind of take over. And it's funny because like, I'll go out and wrestle and sometimes when the crowd sees me or if people haven't seen me or they're seeing me for the first time, they see these scars on my back and they're like, Oh my God, what happened to him? Oh my God. And then like, you'll hear word of mouth kind of trickle through the fans. Oh, he, he battled cancer or, Oh, he did this or he did that. And so I want to talk about that. So um, I'm going to actually throw up a a picture of your, your back where the scars are and stuff like that. But let's, let's just go back. So people don't really know your story. So you and I bounced together. We had a fabulous time. Those are memories that I will never forget. Uh, Probably the best, uh, you know, of the 18 years that I ended up doing the door, that was that period with you and Oz and us. And I loved it, Mike. It was, it was fun going to work and we had some great times. Now, in 2012, you were shot in a drive-by shooting uh, at the nightclub that we were working at. And that started a whole cascade of events in your life. Uh, you end up, you know, you recovered from that. We're going to talk about the shooting. Uh, you ended up getting uh, cancer. Uh, you've had multiple surgeries. So let's just start back. Let's talk about the night, uh, you know, that night when you end up getting shot. And then we'll move forward from there. Are you cool with that? Yep. No problem. Okay. So tell me your experience. You, you're working the door. You're having a good time. Uh, we're laughing and we're always having a good time. And then there's that serious incident that happens at the nightclub where we end up kicking someone out and a drive-by shooting happens. So kind of tell so me. Were, your you, thoughts. were you working that night? You were. Yes. Yep. I was. Yeah. yeah. It's funny what you remember and you don't. I was at the top of the stairs and I had turned around and I'd walked down. And the moment I had walked down, that's when the shooting happened. But you were you inside? You weren't on the nightclub for most. You were inside, were you not? I was outside like, talking to Brass at the time. And so the video and the three of you guys were up there. And the moment I turned down and came down the stairs, that's when the shot started. Right. But I would say maybe, let's say, let's go 20 minutes before that. It was yeah. you and me upstairs in the office 
we were talking and then over the radio we hear hey we got to get this guy out he's falling asleep in the bar right and we're like i i remember i remember saying specifically to brass i'm like can you handle it and he was like uh we kind of want you to come here and then i looked at you and you looked at me and you're like you just go and i was like okay fine i'll go yeah so we, i went downstairs and by the time i got downstairs to the front door they were already uh um escorting the gentleman out yeah i uh, know they were escorting the, uh the girlfriend out the girlfriend out yes and when i got there she came to the top of the stairs and she was swinging and kicking and i was just like let her go and then they let her go and she came she started kicking and punching me and i was just i just kind of stood there took it and I was like, okay, are you done? She's like, yeah. And then I was like, can you please stand on the other side of the rope? Um, I was like, can you just tell me what happened? And she's like, yo, they're throwing my boyfriend out for no reason, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, let's just, you know, relax. We'll try and figure out what's going on. I'm like, I'm new. Like, just trying to talk to me. And I'm trying to calm her down. And then I, and then I guess it was Brass, Chino, and was it yourself dealing with the other guy up the street? uh they kicked him out it was brass i think it was it wasn't i didn't deal with him directly but it was it was brass in particular and yeah i remember them kicking them out and and then i remember him doing the whole pointing thing and pulling out money remember he's like you don't know who i am like i'm a baller yes he yes he said he was like you don't know who i am but like he none of that was directed at me personally right none of it was like because i remember i talked to him and i was just like sorry we can't let you back in you know it's unfortunate and it none none of that was directed at me and no. he pulled out his money he's like you don't know who you're fucking with blah 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 excuse my language um but he was like you know <laughs> he's like i'm gonna come back i'm gonna shoot this place up and you you've worked the door longer than i have and you've heard those stories probably thousands of times. Yeah. And like, you know, I've heard them too, but nine times out of 10 guys don't usually come back. Yeah. Um, and so maybe five minutes go by and I was, I had just finished talking to um, what's the officer's name? Uh, Red. Yeah. Uh, Cause he, he, he was on shift. Yeah, And he, he came by and I was talking with him and he was asking me, he's like, oh, what's going on? And I told him what had happened with the guy up the street. He had just left. Uh, Jamal was at one end uh, or Cobalt was at one end. I was at the top. Liz turned to me, said she was going to go throw out the trash. I said, yes. okay, cool. No problem. She goes to throw out the, tra uh, the trash. I guess you had gone down the stairs. Bobby was in the middle. And then I hear what I thought was fireworks going off. And then I hear pop, pop. And I was like, who's firing off fireworks in the middle of the street? And I look up the street towards, um, what would it be towards? You're looking north on Douglas there. Yes, I was looking up north towards us and I didn't see anything. And I look back and I can see, a I see the car coming. And I mean, I just remember making eyes with Jamal and both our eyes were just like, oh, shit. Like, it's about to get real. Yeah. And so that's when the drive-by, we started hearing shots fired. And Bobby, uh, Jamal had ran in. 
Bobby was going in. And I remember, I remember like, cause I was a bigger guy and I didn't want to turn my back to the door because I thought if I turn my back to the door, I get, I get shot in the yeah. back because it was a bigger target. Yeah. So I remember I, I, I ran to the door and I kind of like, I guess I dove inside the door and I got hit right in the leg as soon as I got in. And I thought that I dove down the stairs. I thought that I just went down the stairs. Yeah. Uh, news to me was that Jamal actually came back for me grabbed me and pulled me to the bottom yes and i remember i'm like i'm shot i'm shot i'm shot everybody get down everybody get down i'm shot and like the music was still going and then i um olivier the bartender he was like what is happening and like because he was working the bar at the bottom of the stairs and he was like what is going on and he couldn't believe it and then i didn't panic everyone else and then once like everyone else started knowing what was kind of going on. I wasn't, I was trying not to panic. Yeah. And I was, I was like, gotta stay cool. Gotta stay calm. Yeah. And like, I remember when I, when I was at the bottom of the stairs, um, I, I, I could still move my leg and I kept moving my leg in like a circular motion. And I was like, okay, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. If I can still move my leg, it can't be that bad. And I that like that was kind of like a saving grace for me, and I was moving my life around, and then it kind of started to calm down. And then I remember you going to the top of the, you had come by, and you were going back up to the top of the stairs, and you and me kind of just locked eyes, and you just kind of nodded at me, and I nodded back at you because, and like, I, like I knew you were on top of it. I knew like, okay, Ari's gonna Ari's on top of it. Ari's gonna figure this out. Like everything's gonna be okay. So when the bullet hit you, what how, what would you describe that sensation like? Uh, I would say intense heat. It felt like my entire. It felt like my leg and my testicles were on fire. So here's the thing: the bullet didn't exactly go in and out in a straight line, did it? No. It zigzagged. Yeah. So let's talk about the path your bu the bullet took. So it went through my hamstring, uh, through the other side of my hamstring, singed my right testicle through, like it didn't get my left side. Then it went, uh, I guess, going through there and then... It hit the, my left uh, left inner side of my thigh, and from what I was told, it hit my cell phone, and because I had my cell phone in my pocket, yeah, I remember that's and that's what stopped it, yeah, from going through like the other side of my leg, yeah. So, yeah. So, bullet comes in, zigzags, ends up getting lodged in the phone, and I wish I took a picture of the phone because I remember pulling it out of the, your your back pocket. Uh, pretty crazy. And um, you recovered pretty quick from that. I have to say, uh, just a guy getting shot, you're the next couple of days around crutches and just moving around and stuff like that. Uh, you know, so the shooter, for the people who don't know, he was ended up, he, he was uh, caught. He was on the lam for three days. That was an interesting thing. So uh, they couldn't find him. 
uh, and then they eventually did, and he was arrested and thrown in jail for nine years type of thing. So um, after that happened, obviously that changes people's perception on working the door and and uh, how things are. There's an innocence that is lost, right? And I always knew, I'd seen a lot of violence on the door, so had you, but again, nine out of 10 times, it's always this, you don't have to think anything of it. And then obviously this happened. So it was, uh, it was definitely a, a change for sure. Uh, I do recall though, when the shooting did happen, so it was something like 13 or 15 shots that the guy ended up doing. And there's people outside smoking um, where Liz was, uh, if she was still there, she would have definitely been shot because there was a bullet that went right through there. So it was just by happenstance that she got up to leave to go empty the garbage or whatever. And yep. it's crazy that all those bullets, they got sprayed. It wasn't just one bullet. Um, didn't no. hit anyone. It, I mean, obviously it hit you. I remember watching the video too of bullets hitting the front of the door and, and you know, that kind of shattering, that movie like splintering thing happening. Pretty crazy event. For sure. So let's fast forward. So you end up eventually retiring from the bouncing business, uh, as do I. I go into law enforcement and and you go into this kind of professional wrestling thing, um, something you've always wanted to do. You, I remember working the door with you, Mike, and you would cut promos and I would just fucking have me in stitches. It was awesome. So if anyone was going to be a pro wrestler, it's going to be you. So you end up going through the process you start working the circuit and you get diagnosed with cancer when was that what year 2016 okay what kind of cancer was it at first it was testicular cancer stage three testicular cancer okay do you think that the bullet had anything to do with that i i believed it yeah okay i always because... i always thought about that i'm like you know, foreign objects, trauma, I don't know. So what had happened was, like, after I got shot, it had singed my right testicle, but, like, nothing, like, it didn't, it was still there, still good, and everything like that. And I remember, like, my right testicle was, it kind of got a little hard, and then eventually it just started growing, like, bigger and bigger. And it started, start, when it started growing, that's when I went to go get it checked out. And I was, and that's when I found out that I was diagnosed. So it just so happens like the right testicle that was shot was also the one that was removed and also the one that was cancer and, and formed testicular cancer. So I think it, in my personal opinion, I think it all played a part. So you get diagnosed with stage three testicular cancer. They end up uh, doing uh, surgery. Uh, do you do chemo or radiation at that time? So I did three months of chemotherapy, but what they had found out was when they, when they tested me, it was um, so the cancer had spread to my lungs and it wasn't lung cancer. It was still considered testicular cancer, mm -hmm. but it was uh, what it, when they removed my testicle, what they found was it was 95% teratoma, 5% cancer. Okay. And teratomas, like if they're left alone, uh, they can turn into a, turn into a cancer. Uh, so not good to be in, in your lungs. So 
even they they put me on the they put me on the chemotherapy to kill I guess whatever other cancers might be in my body, but chemotherapy doesn't work on teratomas. It doesn't shrink a teratoma. It doesn't change it. There's really no effect on on a teratoma. Um, so that being said, it was just like in my head, I was just like, well, if it's 95% teratoma, why don't we just, why don't I just skip the chemotherapy altogether, do the surgeries and go. But the medical opinion is you do the chemotherapy first, then you go in and, uh, do the surgeries. Okay. So then I had to have, um, I had surgery. I had my first surgery, which was done on my right side and that removed probably 20, I want to say 20 tumors off my right side of my lung. Okay. Uh, the biggest one being the size of a baseball uh, on my, yeah, on my right side and going into that and just going through that surgery, like there's nothing you can do to prepare for a lung surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of have to go in just whatever happens, happens. Um, so the, it was a, supposed to be a routine surgery. And normally these surgeries are three hours. My surgery took six and a half, seven hours. Okay. And the reason, the reason my surgery took so long is because it, I had so much muscle on my back that it took them forever to cut through my back. <laughs> so I was forever jacked and they, they couldn't get through all the muscle. Love it. And I even remember my surgeon uh, saying to me, she was just like, you know, to peel back your skin, it's just quite amazing. Like you can see all the muscle fibers and everything like that. Um, she was, she was like, it's, it's so cool to see. And I was just like, yeah, that, that's my back. <laughs> Uh, so, so that was surgery one Sur yeah but also doing surgery one I almost didn't make it so I did surgery one and I came out and I was fine and like you you're having to train yourself to breathe all over again okay and it, it's such a weird concept because you take breathing for granted because like you know how to breathe and everything's fine but taking a deep breath oh my God, I was in so much pain. Hmm. And when you're, when you first come out, you're told to take, you have to take deep breaths, but I was taking really short breaths. And because I kept taking short breaths because it hurt and whatever pain medication they were giving me just wasn't working. They're like, Oh, put a pillow beside your ribs. And like, this will help. It doesn't help. Um, it was just like an, like a pain that I've never felt before. So I kept taking these small breaths Anyways, uh, the night goes by, nurse comes to check on me in the morning, and every morning they check your vitals. So when the nurse checked on me in the morning, she checked my oxygen, and my oxygen was at like 50%. And she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I feel fine. And I'm like, I was the way I am talking to you now. Yeah. And she's like, something's not right. Like, checks the vitals again, and it was like 50%. And then she's like... Oh God. Then this whole team of doctors comes rushing in. Yeah. Um, and so what ended up happening was through the night, I wasn't taking deep breaths. I just kept it, taking these short breaths. And what I had done is I closed off, um, 
the lower part of my lung, I just, I just closed it off because I was only taking short breaths. I wasn't taking deep breaths to make it expand and get bigger. Um, and so what they ended up having to do is they put me on a ventilator and I had to have a ventilator on me all day. And like, I was just pumping oxygen into me to expand my lung to make sure that I could breathe. Couldn't eat all day. They had to do that, did that. And then once they did that, it was like, okay, you have to really focus on taking these deep breaths and kind of go from there. So that, but yeah, that was surgery number one. When you were on the ventilator, was it painful? No, it was like, I felt like Darth Vader. Okay, <laughs> got it. So, so like I have this, vent, I had this ventilator on me and it was like, I, like I, when I was breathing, I was like, <laughs> and so like, I was I thought, like, I was tired and like, I, I personally hate needles and I hate getting my blood taken and everything like that. And they had to consistently come in and take my blood and do needles and eventually got to the point where I just didn't care. I was like, yeah, whatever, yeah. do what you got to do. Cause I was so tired and I was just, like, I, I was, I was almost done fighting it, but then they put the ventilator on. It sucked having it on all day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once it was off, I was good to go. So were you wrestling prior to your cancer? Yes. And you got diagnosed, you're out. How long are you out of commission for? So I got diagnosed in August and then I had three months of chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, uh, because like, it was unsure whether or not I was going to have to do surgeries or not. Um, because they didn't know, like maybe the teratomas will go away. Maybe right. they'll shrink. They didn't know. And then, so, but as I was doing the chemotherapies, um, I, I, I still went to the gym. Like I didn't go as often, but I, I was still going to the gym. Uh, I was still working out, but the biggest thing that took a hit for me was my cardio my cardiovascular just went to crap and it was because the lungs, the, the chemotherapies that were, they were giving me specifically affected my lungs. And it was like to go for like a, a jog, I could jog for 20 seconds before I was huffing and puffing. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, what is happening to me? Um, so I did that. I did that for three months and then they gave me like Christmas off but at Christmas time, there was two wrestling shows like that were kind of going on. And I, I was booked. I booked myself on two wrestling shows. So I'd say probably I finished my chemotherapy in November. And then I did two shows in, in December. And the, yeah, the one show I did, I came out dressed as Santa Claus and people were like, oh, you know, who's the Santa Claus? And it was in um, Barrie, Ontario. And I had kind of made a name for myself in Barrie, Ontario. And I had a strong fan base out there. Yeah. Uh, to the point where, like, I had... It was so cool because it was the first time I've ever seen, like, a little kid dressed up as me. Uh, so he had, like, a Playboy jacket. And, right. like, he, I was, I was his uh, favorite uh, wrestler. And so I was just like, that's cool. Um, so then I came out as Santa Claus and then, um, to, to one of the, 
to another wrestler and he was running down Santa over the holidays. And then um, as the wrestler turns his back, I reveal, I take off the hat and then you see the bald head and people are like, wait, who's this? And I take off the beard and all the get up and they're like, oh my God, it's, it's Playboy. And then like the crowd, all 200 people going crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was an awesome moment because I had uh, my fiance in the crowd with her family mm-hmm. and my fiance didn't know what I was doing. And I remember, like, when I came by at Santa Claus, I was handing out candy canes to everybody. And, like, I kept messing with her. And she was just like, why does this Santa Claus keep messing with me? Uh, she didn't know what I was doing on the show. And then when I came out as Santa, uh, when I took off the Santa outfit, she was like, oh, my God. And then, like, after I have the match with the guy and, you know, one, two, three, uh, people were literally crying uh, in the crowd. Yeah. Every, like, I... I, I go around and I, you know, I do the hand slap and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, but people were crying and just overwhelmed with emotion. So that's your return. You end up, did you transition from Playboy to Relentless? When did that happen? Uh, that happened. So I had been doing it and then I continued to do the Playboy. Um and then what it was called, I had sit, I had, I had sat down and I was talking with my wife. Yeah. And my my wife who watched wrestling like in the nineties, um, and that's how we kind of like met each other. Was not really through wrestling. It was just like, um, one of my friends was like, "Oh, you know, you better not re- re- mess with him. He's a wrestler." And she's like, "Oh yeah, I'll lay him out with some sweet shin music." Uh-huh. And I was like. You, you you know wrestling terminology who it. are you yeah um so that's how we kind of met but anyways my my wife and i were talking and she looked at john cena and how much of a polarizing figure john cena is and how simple it is like he doesn't really he doesn't really have he's just your overall good guy and his slogan is just never give up. And, you know, he comes out every day and he's, you know, he goes hard every day and, you know, kids love him and, and he's just so over. Mm-hmm. And she looked at him and she said, you, with your story and everything that you've been through, she goes, you're, you're the, you're John Cena. You're the next John Cena. And she's like, if people knew, exactly what you've gone through and everything like that and just you know like that that's you they can send you out to schools or to make a wish foundations because you've been through what these kids are going through and you you're you've come out on the other side like you're such an inspiration to so many people mm-hmm. because a lot of people have been touched uh by cancer throughout their lives they know somebody or have a family member that's gone through it and just to kind of look at me and see that I've gone, what I've gone through and how I persevered through it. She was just like, playboy was good, but she's like, you need to become like, you just never stopped. You never gave up. You never quit. You went to the gym. And then we were kind of playing around with names. And then I said, relentless. And then she was just like, yeah, that's it. You're, you're the relentless John Atlas. Love it. So 
you you have the surgery, you go through all that stuff, and you know everything's a okay, right? The cancer's gone. So I had two surgeries. Um, they they knew they were going to have to do two surgeries, but I did two surgeries, and then I did another. So I did a surgery in January, and then I had another one in March, and then I was again? sorry on your lungs again. Yeah. Uh, so I had to do my right. Uh, so it was a right thor- thoracotomy and then a left thoracotomy. Okay. Um, so both on my lungs. Like I never had to get any of my actual lung removed. Yes. Uh, they were able to go in and remove everything that was uh, able to be removed without damaging any of my lungs, okay. which was great. Uh, so then, yes, I went through. So I go through two surgeries and then it was end of March, but like it's end of March. And I start like, you know, me, I just, I start training right away. And they're like, you have to take it easy. Um, don't do anything like, like you can't go to the gym. You can't lift anything over 50 pounds. I'm like 50 pounds. Come on. (laughs) And they're, and they're just like, no, honestly, like you, you, I'm like, okay, whatever. So like I finished my surgery in March and I'm like, I'm going to the gym but in the in that time, I'm just walking on the treadmill. So I start off with walking on the treadmill, and like I'm doing that for maybe it took me 15 minutes to do a mile at that time, like just straight walking. Yeah. And I would do that, and then I would incorporate a little bit of a jog, and then I would do a little bit of weights, and like just I just wanted to see where I was at with everything. Like what I like, what my muscle memory was, what I could still do, and so like I remember, like I, I put a plate on the bench press, and I could I could still do that quite easily, and I was like, fifty pounds, like they're, they're like they're saying fifty pounds for the average male, and I'm like I'm not the average I'm not the average male I'm not some brittle old man like yeah. I'm young I can still go, and so like I I'm lifting a little heavy I'm lifting heavier than fifty pounds. So I remember I like I had put on I, I had put on 225 and I was just like 225 was just always the benchmark for me. Like if I can push 225 for a set of 10, like I still have my strength. Yeah. And I remember I lifted it off and banged out like eight to eight or nine reps, and then I just I just racked it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm feeling good about myself. Well, this is awesome. And then I had to go for my follow-up with my doctor uh-huh. and I'm tell- and then I tell my doctor, I'm just like, you know, I'm in the gym and I'm, I'm bench pressing 225. And he's just like, what? And then I'm just like, yeah. And he's just like, you shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, why not? And he's just like, you could collapse your lung. And I was just like, Oh, <laughs> didn't think about that. Well, you didn't have that information. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Wow. Okay. So you've had the surgery on the lungs. Did they have to go in again to your lungs? Yes. So what ended up, so I do the surgeries and then I had to, um, on my right, was my right? No, it was my left side, my left side. Um, they started, uh, there, there was a small, a couple of small legions that had grown back. Yeah. And um, they're just like, 
it's better that we, you know, we'll monitor them over the next three months. So I was going for three month follow-ups and, you know, like it's not impeding you and what you're doing or anything like that, but we'll just monitor it. And it's, it's better to get them removed than to have them stay in there. And if they form into anything, you know, it's just bad. So it's better to get them out. So I'm like, okay. Um, Eventually I had to get the surgery done, but now like I'm kind of, I, I'm structured to what the surgery is and how I'm going to feel. So I'm, I'm more prepared this time because I've been through it twice already. So now I'm going for my third surgery and this is on my left side and they're going to cut me open. So uh, they cut me open again, they go in and they remove uh, some legions. So Mike, I have a question before you go on. Yeah. Are they cutting open like uh, this again? Or do yeah. they have, really, not a small incision? They can't just go in with a little tube and no, Unfortunately not. Uh, same length, same size. Um, but this, like when I went in this time, I was, I had like, for whatever reason, I had the head surgeon of Toronto General. He was going to be the one that was operating on me yeah. uh, because my, my surgeon was, um, operating on somebody else yeah. and so I felt I was just like okay like this guy's because when I got when I first came out and I had the scars I was like oh my god like the teratoma uh, uh, not teratoma um, the way my scars had healed mm-hmm. um, they keloided and there was it was very strong keloid it wasn't flat it was very bumpy Yeah, and I was just like oh geez um so when I went in for the third sir, I went in for the third time. I don't know what he did, but he ended up making it so smooth and just very a f- very fine line. Uh, so when, anyways, they went in and they removed what they had to remove. I think they removed maybe like six. He removed six or seven um, teratomas. Yeah. And then they have to send them off uh, for a pathology report. Yeah. And when they when they got the results back for the pathology report, um, I remember like I they're like, oh, you know, come into the office. And I thought that was weird because usually they give me the results over the phone. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, this isn't good. And then I remember when I sat down, like my doctor came in, and she like my the surgeon was there, and then oh she I was like, okay, so what are the results? And they really try and like prolong everything. They're like, oh, we're just waiting on like someone else. I'm like, if you're waiting on someone else, I know it's bad news. Like, just give it to me straight. Stop making me wait. Yeah. And so another one of my doctors came in and then they were just like, so what had happened was when we, when they removed the teratomas, um, one of your, one of the teratomas had a partial transformation to a different type of cancer, which is called uh, peanut and I was like okay I'm like but it got removed and they're like yes it did get removed but they're like this might still be in your system like there might still be cancer in your system and like I had legions on the right side of my lung too and I was just like okay I'm like am I gonna die like what does this mean and they're like we don't know but they're like we're sending you to a different um doctor we're sending you to the spe- uh, a different specialist he's going to look at you and then you're going to you know 
you're going to have to go through chemotherapy again. And I was just like, Oh my God, I got to do this again. So huge blow to like me, my family, because we had thought we were past all this. It was done. And then we went in to see a different specialist and he was going over uh, the, this peanut cancer. And he was saying that the chemotherapy drugs that they're going to be giving me are going to are significantly stronger. Um, you know, it does work on the, the good thing is the chemotherapy drugs do work on this type of cancer. Mm-hmm. They are known to shrink it. Um and reduce it. Um, and it was just kind of like, but like he, he didn't really, he, he was just like, it might work. It might not work. And he's like, I don't know. And he goes, based on what he's seen and based on my results and everything like that, he's like, it has, it doesn't look like it's spread to anywhere in his body. Like it hasn't spread anywhere. He's in good shape. He's young. Um, but you know, the, at first they were like, he's going to have to do 24 rounds of chemotherapy. And I was just like, 24 rounds? Like, and so it was like, I was going to have to be on chemotherapy for a year. I was just like, holy crap. And so, of course, like, my mom's crying, my wife's crying, and like, I'm, ju- I'm holding it together, and I'm just like, all right, like, here we go. Kind of got a button, you know, roll with the punches. Got to do like, what else can you do at that point? Like it is what it is. It's going to happen regardless. You just kind of make the best of it. And you know, here we go. And so then they ended up putting me on uh, a different type of chemotherapy. So like when I, when I went in for my first round of this type of chemotherapy, so what it was, was before I could go into princess Margaret hospital, and they give me the chemotherapy for like an hour out of the day. So you go, you sit in the chair for like an hour, maybe two hours. You get the chemotherapy, you go home. Mm-hmm. With this different type of chemotherapy that I was on, um, I had to stay in the hospital overnight. So I had to stay for uh, on one of the cycles I was doing. Like I had to stay for four nights in the hospital. And they were injecting me with like, the size of these syringes were like huge. They were size of like, it was, it was, it was, they were massive. I can't equate of the, the size of these. Syringes. They were like Regan's fingers. <laughs> yes. If not bigger with this red liquid. And I, I remember like, <laughs> I remember laughing because I'm there in my regular clothes and they're injecting me with this stuff. And then when the nurses are injecting me, like they have a, a mask over their face, they have a full-on gown, and they're like they're covered head to toe. And this is even before COVID, but they're they're covered head to toe. And I'm laughing, and they're like, "Why are you laughing?" And I'm just like, "You're injecting this drug into me that is potentially life-threatening." Here I am, like barely any clothes on and there you are you know you're because of, if it touches your skin yeah. or something like that it can it can lead to burns on your skin or abrasions on your skin so that's why all the nurses are covered up and i'm just kind of sitting there taking it just like yeah well this is what i gotta do <laughs> uh, 
So how many rounds do you do then? So every, I was, I started in August and the weird thing about this was like, these are stronger drugs and this was stronger chemotherapy. And as I'm going through this, I remember I reached out to one of my wrestling um, kind of mentors and I told him about it and I was just like, you know, I got to do this chemotherapy again. And he was just like, yeah, so. And I was just like, it kind of took me back. Like, I almost wanted that what was me feeling. Um, but he gave me that like, you know, fuck this. You're going to beat it. You beat it once. You beat it twice. Keep going to the gym. You got to keep going to the gym. You got to keep pushing yourself. You got to keep going. And I was just like, okay. Like, it was the motivation that I really needed. Yeah. And it just, it just, it just kicked me into a different gear. And I remember like I went through the chemotherapy the first time and I came home and the first day I was, I was really tired. I slept, but I forced myself up and I was like, I'm going to go for a walk. I went for a walk, a nice long walk. I walked for maybe like two miles back, felt good. And then like, I just, every day I I'd push myself. I went to the gym. I was, you know, pushing myself in the gym. I was still lifting weights and um, I eventually it was my it was a little concerning to my doctors because I was putting on muscle. I started to put on muscle mass while going through the chemotherapy and my doctors were like looking at they're like, what? Because my creatine levels uh, were going up. Yeah. And they're like, what are you doing? And I was just like, they're like, are you taking creatine as a supplement? I'm like, yeah, I'm like you. So you're shrinking me down to nothing and I have to build myself back up again in four weeks time before I go through another cycle. So I'm doing what I have to do to build myself back up. There's only so much you can eat. And um, they're just like, you're putting on so much muscle. They're like, how, like you shouldn't be able to put on this much muscle going through this type of chemotherapy. Yeah. And they're just like, can you tone down your workouts a bit? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm like, you know, I, I feel fine. And, you know, well, what they didn't, what they, this, uh, this all ties into later on, but what they don't realize, what they didn't realize is like, cre- my creatine levels were going up. Yes. Um, you still there? Yeah. My, uh, my creatine levels were going up. Yes. But that's not, a, that's not, a, so they use that as an indicator on your kidneys. Okay. And so when they think your creatine levels are going up, they think that your kidney functions aren't functioning at their highest percentage. Okay. So the biggest thing with um, going through like the chemotherapies is they want to make sure you flush it out of your system. So you're like, I was consistently being like injected with water and saline so that I was peeing all the time. And then they're like, when you're at home, you have to, make sure you drink tons of water and that you, you know, you're peeing a lot because they want to get all the toxins out of your system. Um, so as that's happening, but I'm still going to the gym and I'm working out. So I'm working out and I'm putting on muscle mass, but putting on muscle mass can also increase your creatine because more, the, the bigger you are, the higher creatine level that you're going to have right? Uh, because you have more muscles. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that your kidneys aren't functioning. So I was going through this 
and I ended up do every three months I was having to go in to get a CT scan. And every time I went in to get a CT scan, nothing had changed. So like the legions on my right side, they weren't getting bigger. They weren't getting smaller. They're still staying the same. Um, but there was no signs of cancer anywhere else in my body, uh, which was also good. Um, and so, like I said before, I was going to have to do 24 rounds. And then my doctor, as I'm going through it, my doctor is like, mm, you know, maybe we'll only have to do 16. And I was like, okay, that's, that's great. You know, because from what he's seeing, it's working. Right. Uh, because there's no, there's no other cancer within my body. Uh, the big part was when I did the surgery on my last surgery, which was my fourth on the right side of my body. And when the pathology report came back, everything came back non-cancerous. So what that means is whatever was on my left side, that peanut hadn't transformed into anything on my right side. And there was signs of no cancer on my right side. And there had been signs of no cancer throughout my entire body. But with their, like what I, I was, even after the surgery, I was still doing chemotherapy. So I, I, in total, I ended up doing 10 rounds. Okay. And when did you, were you wrestling at all during any of this or no? I kept up wrestling through all of it. And that's like, it was, the drugs were stronger, but I was working out harder. Um, I was pushing myself harder. And I remember sitting on my couch and this is in August. And I had already been doing like the chemotherapy for probably two. Yeah. I'd say I've been doing it for two months now. And I'd still been wrestling here and there. And then I get an email from WWE uh, inviting me um, to their camp. So they were coming to town to do SummerSlam. And they were going to host a Canada date, like a Canada tryout for uh, Canadians um, in the area. Well, actually across Ontario. No, sorry, across Canada. So what year is is this, Mike? What year is this? 18? Uh, this is 2019. 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. Summer. Yeah. Sum, summer of 2000. No, uh, uh, I think it was 2018. Okay. Yeah. 2018. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so summer 2018 and they invited me to do this tryout and I was just like, at first I like, I was, I, I was like, I can't do the tryout. Like I know, I know what they try and do with the tryouts. They try and blow you up. You have to be in really good shape. And like, I was in, I looked the part, uh, but it, I, like my cardio was just not where I wanted it to be. And it was on, so hard. But you're on chemotherapy at this time, right? Yes. Yeah. And I remember I had told my wife, like, that day I was just, Hey, I was like, Hey, look what happened. And I was kind of like nonchalant about it. And she's like, 
oh my God, you're going to do this. Right. And I was just like, I don't, I don't think so. I'm like, I can't do this. And then she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, this is what you've worked for your entire life. This is what you've wanted. And you're going to turn your back and say, no, she's like to hell with that. Like, you're not going to say no, you're going to bust your ass and you're going to go in there and you're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, okay, okay. And then I had talked to another one of my friends and he's like, you have to do it because he was invited to the uh, camp as well. And he's like, we're going to train three, four times a week. And he's like, we'll go over all the drills. And he's like, we'll do everything that we can to get ourselves ready for this. And I was like, okay, you know, I feel confident. And the good thing about like, as strong as these drugs were for the chemotherapy, it took like they would get, so I would go through them and then they would give me three weeks. Oh yeah. About two and a half, three weeks to recover before they hit me with another round because that's what they figured the recovery time was. Um, and I developed like I had gotten to the point where like I could go a week later and I was feeling pretty good about myself. My energy levels were back. My strength was back. Cardio wasn't the greatest, but it was, it was coming along. Um, so I, I was feeling confident in that aspect. And when the tryout was, um, I would be kind of at my peak performance, um, wise, because I'd be, going on my third third and a half week um without any chemotherapy technically at my strongest so i felt confident in that aspect so i had told my doctors about it and my doctors wouldn't sign off on it and they're just like we don't recommend you do this you know you shouldn't do this and i was like okay but i'm gonna do it anyways and they're like, yeah, that's, they're like, that's totally up to you. Um, we can't stop you from doing it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyways. And they're like, okay. <laughs> they're just like, they're looking at me like I have two heads. They're like, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. And the big thing was, so you, it was a two, it was a two day tryout and no, sorry. Well, yeah, it was a two day tryout, but on the, I think it was a Thursday uh, you had to go in to do medicals and you had to, you had to pass your medical to be able to participate. And so I remember going in to do my medical and they're just like, Oh, you, it says here that you stay like, you have to be, and they're like, be honest with your medical. If you're not honest, we'll find out. And the big contemplation I was having going into that is like, do I tell them I'm on chemotherapy? Do I tell them I'm not on chemotherapy? Right. What do I do? And I remember, so the mentor that uh, kind of pushed me to keep going and keep uh, doing myself, his name was Rob Fuego. And he was a, he was a wrestler from back in the day, but he broke in with um, edge and Christian and he had wrestled at the same gym and was trained by the same person as, as those guys. Mm-hmm. And he was friend, and, and he became good friends with edge and he had been showing my, uh, my stuff to edge. And he had, he had told edge about everything that was happening and what I was going through. And edge is like, who is this guy? Like, this is crazy. Um, and edge he edge had told him he's like just be honest with them he said it's like a job interview you don't want to get caught in a lie right off the hop 
because if you are caught in a lie, then it's just like they don't think you're trustworthy. If they can't trust you with a medical, how can they trust you to go in the ring and be safe with somebody else's body if you're already going to be lying about yourself? So I came straight out um, with their trainers, and I was just like, I'm currently on chemotherapy right now, if you couldn't tell, uh, with my no eyebrows and bald head. And um, I'm going through cancer treatments. I've had this kind of surgeries, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, did your doctor say this was okay? I'm like, my doctors didn't really sign off on it, but this is something I want to do. And I was lucky enough that when I was, I, I like, so I tell this to the trainer and the trainer looks at me and he's just like, you're awesome. You're, you're, you're the fucking man, man. He's just like, my wife went through Hodgkins. My wife was going through this. He's like, I'm, he's like, we're going to make this happen for you. We're going to make sure that you're able to, you know, do the tryout. Uh, we really want this to happen for you. And I was just like, that was like a sigh of relief off me. I was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. Yeah. And they're like, is your heart, is your heart okay? I'm like, yeah, my heart's fine. And they're like, cause the, the drugs that I was taking can have a significant impact on my heart. Yeah. And I was just like, my cardio is fine. Like I've been doing this and they were just like, okay. Um, they're like, if anything, we'll monitor you, you know, as the tryouts are happening, if you have to step out, you step out, whatever. Um, but kind of, you know, do as you will. And I was like, awesome. So they cleared me to do the tryout and I was so happy for it. And then I go into the two day tryout. And how'd it go? How'd you find it? Was it, was it super it, tough? No, uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, so I had been like, it was almost like, a, like I'd been preparing for this for like two months in advance yeah. and I'd been, yeah. I'd been training in the ring three four times a week and i was doing my roles and i was doing i was running the ropes and there's this one drill that they do and it's 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 the toughest fucking drill i've ever had to fucking do so you're in a you're in a 20 by 20 and what they end up doing is they put um like a body in the middle of the ring uh like not not like a human body but just like a mannequin body or whatever and they put or, or a sandbag in the middle of the ring yeah and what you have to do is you hit the ropes drop down um in front of it uh burpee over it drop down again get up hit the ropes drop down again burpee over it. and you continuously do that back and forth for a minute and it's to see how many you can get in within a minute and then this is like one of their ultimate tests that they do to see how your cardio is. And it's like, you're like, if you can get 10 in a minute, yeah, that's, that's considered pretty good. And when I was training, I was doing this and I was doing it. I was training in an 18 by 18 foot ring and I was doing it and I was getting 10 in a minute, and, but I was gassed at the end of it. What they, what they do at the performance center is like, you do that three different times. So like you do that in the first ring and then you get out and then you move on to the next ring and then you do it again in the next ring and then you do it again in another ring. Luckily for me, like at the Canada tryout, they only, they only had set up one ring. Yeah. 
And um, I was like, okay, there's only one ring set up. The cardio, and there was like probably 50, 50 guys there. Yeah. 50 guys and girls. And I was like, there's one ring. There's 50 of us. There's no way they're going to be able to make us like do these blow up drills. So I was like, okay, like uh, it just didn't work out mathematically. Yeah. And I was like, there's no way, there, there's no way they'll have enough time to do this. But um, like just opening up with, with their conditioning, like to open up, you have to, there's a drill we do where you have to get up properly and then go back down to the, down to the floor. And you do that 20 times. So as we're doing the warm up, like the warm up was hard. You get a good sweat going and everything like that. But there was like four or five guys that were dropping out of the warm up. Yeah. And like they were going to throw up. Guys couldn't do the warm up. And I like, I was sweating, but I wasn't out of breath or anything. Like it, it was just like, it was a warm up for me. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like I'm seeing other guys kind of bow out and like they're not in as good shape as I'm in. And I'm going through chemotherapy. And so like in my head, psychologically, that's giving me an added bonus. I'm like, okay, I got this. Yeah. Like I can do this. So how many did you do? How many, sorry? How many did you do in the 20 by 20 when you eventually you had to do it? So they didn't end up, they, they didn't make us do that drill. Okay. So like we were all like a bunch of us were thinking like, they're going to make us do this drill. Yeah. And they didn't make us do it. They focused a lot on roles, which okay. I was I was good at and I was able to execute. And then they a lot of it too where they were weeding out was just can you follow direction? Are you coachable? So an example is you would do a if you did a role and you didn't do it properly, they'd be like, Okay, do this and do it again. And if you didn't do it right, literally it's get the fuck out of the ring. Okay. And like people are like, oh my God. And it's like they don't have time to waste in that moment. Like, so you're here for a specific reason. If you're if you haven't trained and if you haven't put yourself in the best possible position that you could be in to be in that position, and if they're asking you to do something twice and you can't you can't do it, you're not coachable. They go they see so many athletes every day, how they can't spend time on you if you can't do the basics so your training with landstorm obviously paid off because there's people coming into the training center that are casually doing the wrestling thing they can't follow direction so i'm assuming that lance ran you through all of that and you like it's not a basic thing they want you you're telling me that you need to actually be prepared and just like start running go right yes basically like they're not they're not there to hold your hand um, it, like as cool as it is that you're in the same atmosphere with people that you grew up watching on TV, yeah. they just like, I get it. They don't have time. They don't have time. It's a business. Um, like they're there to find out who is the next John Cena, who is the next Hulk Hogan, uh, you know, who's the next Randy Savage, who can follow these directions that we're giving them within a quick amount of, quick amount of time. And that also relates to like being in the ring and can you follow direction in the ring when a referee is giving you time cues or a referee is giving you information, telling you to take it home, telling you to do this, telling you to do that. Can you follow direction? 
Um, and it comes down to, are you coachable? Yeah. They want, they want people that are coachable. They don't want people that are going, yeah, but yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I can do, yeah. Or it's just yes and go. So what do they do with So after you do the tryout, are you put in a system? How did you do? What's the future look like for you? Do you think? Um, so basically like where I really kind of, I think I separated myself from the pack was on the last day. So like the first day it was a lot of like conditioning and roles and just drills that we were doing in the ring, Mm -hmm. but there's 50 of us and there's one ring and it's like two people are getting in at a time and doing roles and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of time where you're standing around, not really doing anything. So you have to keep yourself mentally focused. You have to keep yourself mentally ready. Um, and you can't be like as cool as it is that like, you know, William Regal's there or, um, you know, Prince Albert is, he's the head coach. So he's there as cool. It is to be around these figures. Like you have to think in your mind, you're here for a reason. I'm here to get a contract. I'm here to be a, a WWE superstar. This is what I want. Yeah. And so I, on the last day, how I ended up separating myself was on my promo. So on the last day, we did our conditioning drills, and then we did promos, and we had a match. Okay. And it was like everyone gets a six-minute match. Um, and when I did my promo, so it was funny because like on the last day, they're like, you can come dressed in whatever you want. You wear your gear. Um, dress, you can dress nice in a suit blah 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 and I'm just like in my head I'm like why am I going to dress nice like they, they don't care if I'm in a suit or not like it, does, it doesn't matter so like a bunch of people all showed up dressed to the nines and suits and I'm just like why you're like okay you're going to cut your promo in your suit that's fine but like they want to look at a body they want to look at something else you're wrestling they don't care like what you're wearing it's not one of those like you have to show up to impress uh kind of things so i worked on my promo the night before and it was like you have a minute to do a a promo and they'll give you a countdown so the way it works is like you're, you're in front of the camera they go three two one go and then when you have I think it was 15 seconds left. You get like a wrist up like this. Then you get 15 seconds. And then when you're at um, 10 seconds, they count you down. They'll be like 10. And then they'll, and they'll, they'll kind of be like this, you know, wrap it up, wrap it up. And they'll, they, they call your name at random. And so I figured, how am I going to get, I have to tell my story in a minute without being cut off um how am i gonna how am i gonna execute that how am i gonna do that yeah and so like because there's there's so much to tell and there's how do i get this in into a coherent promo within a minute um but i was able i was able to do it and i was able to I went over it and I was, I have very good memory or like I have very good muscle memory. So I can, 
and I can also ad lib uh, on the fly as well. Yes. If if I if I need to like throw in a different line here or there, I know I'm able to do it. So I the way I started off with the promo is like you know not everybody. Um, I said everybody has a different path to get to the WWE. Some are easier than others. Um, some face adversity. Adversity is nothing new to me. Um, uh, fast forward to two th- uh, go back in time to 2012 when I was working the door as a doorman and I got shot in a drive-by shooting. Did that stop me from pursuing my dream of becoming a professional wrestler? No. Um, I continued my ways and I, I kind of I, I, I can't remember how, the exact wording of it, uh, but I continue, I continue persevering, continue going and made my name on the independent circuit. Uh, then adversity strikes again in 2016 when I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and at that, uh, yeah, when I was diagnosed with cancer and um, I was going through what I had to go through. And the, the whole time I was, I started cutting the promo, I was wearing a shirt. And then as I get to like the important part of the promo, I take my shirt off and I turn my back to the camera. And I say, um, you, how did I word it? I ended up word. I can't remember exactly how I worded it, but I was just like, um, I've been like, you know, I've been shot. I've been through four surgeries, mo- removing over 56 tumors from my body, um, going through uh, nine rounds of chemotherapy. And again and again, I did not stop. I was relentless in my pursuit to be here. I was relentless in what I had to do to prepare myself to be at this level. And that's when I realized, that's when, you know, or the way I tied it in in the end was um, when when a kid looks at me, they realize dreams do come true. You just have to be relentless in your pursuit to follow them. And when I tied it off, like uh, people were standing up, they were clapping coaches were crying other people were crying and they were just like whole and like a lot like prince uh sorry william regal shook my hand um prince albert shook my hand they're just like that was really powerful stuff that's that's awesome and like that gave me the confidence going into my match later on i was just like i just killed the promo so they know i can talk yeah so they know i they know i can talk people into the building now the wrestling now the wrestling part is easy. Like yeah. I know how to wrestle. I know what I'm doing in there. And if anything, they can like whatever I'm lacking or I'm not good at, they can they can help train me. Like that's that was my uh, mindset. And so they ended up having me wrestle another uh, another big strong like a big strong man. Yeah. And uh, he was from Montreal. Um, he he was a good guy. Uh, but he definitely wasn't like as athletic as I was or yeah, a little stiff. He's a strong man. Yeah. And, um, and it's also, you also have to take in like, you're, you're given a six minute match. They want you to do six minutes and they don't want you to do like 20 minute WrestleMania. (laughs) They want you to do six minutes. And like another, one of the takeaways was, like before we were doing our matches, William Regal comes up and he goes, I've seen Chris Benoit, Kurt Angle, 
Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero all do chain wrestling. Please do not start your matches off with chain. He's like, I've seen the best of the best do chain wrestling. And chain wrestling is where you're exchanging holds back and forth. And he's just like, please do not try to imitate or duplicate that because you're, you're not going to be as good as these guys. You're not going to be on their level. Yeah. And like it, anything that you try and it's just not going to be as good. Yeah. And, and he's a hundred percent right. Like it's not like, yes, there are guys that you see and emulate, but you're not going to be as good as them. Do, do you and do what you're best at. And so I put this match together in my head six minutes i said it's not and another one of the things that the guy wanted to do was like he's like oh let's do the strongman stuff and i was just like it's it's 2018 like you know hulk hogan and andre the giant were 1987 we're 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 20 years removed from that we don't need to do that stuff yeah i said i said plus that that stuff takes time it's a build-up yeah i said it's basically ding, ding, ding. You got to go in six minutes unless it's, it's balls to the wall for six minutes. And the way I structured the match is just like, they are, they already know I'm the baby face just based off my promo. Right. There's no way that like, I can't come out after I cut that promo. I can't just turn around and be the heel now. Like it just doesn't make sense. And so I'm just like, you got like to start it off hot. You rush me, you jump me, beat me around. I'll I'll turn it around on you. Then we'll you know we'll go into a quick heat spot. We'll do heat. I'll do a small um, a small hope, and then you know come back finish. And he like the way I had structured it to him, he was just like it was completely new to him, but it was good for me. And what they ended up doing in my match was. They ended up giving time cues to my to the referee. Yeah. So we have like a personal WWE referee in the ring. And he's he's getting information fed to him by coaches. Mm-hmm. And they're like, tell him to do this, tell him to do that. And they're telling that to him and he's relaying it to me. And then they're seeing if I can execute it. Yeah. So as the match is going on, I'm doing all the stuff that they're telling me to execute. And then it get like the match ended up going a little more than six minutes. Uh, but I was able to execute everything they wanted. And then when it was time to go home, they're like, okay, go home. This makes sense. Take it home. Boom. Hit my finish. The finishing move. I, I, I just did a cross body off the top rope. Yeah. Like, cause I knew I could jump really high and I knew I could land without killing anybody, but make it look impressive. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then again, standing ovation by the coaches. Nice. William, William Regal shakes my hand. Uh, Prince uh, Albert shakes my hand, and I, I felt really good about it. And the guy I was wrestling, he's like, "Why did you keep doing more?" And I was just like, "These are like these are t- what information they're telling me." And he's like, "Oh, I didn't realize they were giving you that." And so it's just like an it's really an added bit of confidence. Cause like when you're on the independent scene, yeah, ref- referees are just there and like, they're not giving you any information really. They're counting one, two, three, but like 
this referee is like, he's like, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, keep, keep going. Oh, Mike, you're doing great. Keep your head up. Uh, pose to the camera. Uh, turn your body this way. Turn your body that way. Uh, do sell more, do this, do that. And it's just like, it's, it's like having a coach in the ring with you. And so it takes a little bit of pressure off and it was just, it was, it was awesome. So where is your resume sitting on Vince's desk or, or triple H's desk? Like who, who has it? What's going on? What so happened? off that tryout, um, I ended up, nobody really got signed off that tryout. Actually one person got signed off that tryout. Yeah. Um, but with uh, with that person, he also had uh, a UK passport and he was from Australia. So what they were looking to do at that time was really expand um, their UK portfolio yeah. uh, because they have NXT UK now. Um, and what I think they're trying to do is just like expand NXT across the world. So they're going to have NXT UK. They might do NXT Japan, NXT uh australia and they're in my head i think they're trying to recreate the nwa yeah where the you'll have all these different nxts and then you'll have a champion that goes around to each kind of territory and defend the belt type of thing uh which is kind of which is kind of a cool idea and a good creation but i know i don't think they'll ever do like an nxt canada um, just because the border, it, it's too close to the, it's too close to the States. Okay. But as to where my resume is, it's they what they end up like, they don't really give you the anything from the tryout. So like, basically you get a generic email that everyone gets like, thank you for coming to the tryout. Um, you're currently on the WWE radar. Uh, unfortunately we have nothing for you at this time. And I have a couple of friends that were that are currently in NXT, yeah. and I was able to reach out to them and ask them how I did, if like if they could give me any sort of feedback. Yeah. And uh, they all said that I ended up doing really well. The coaches really liked me. Um, they liked the fact that I, I was coachable. I'm an athlete, um, but they need to see more tape of me. They want to see more of me in the ring. They, they said they need, I need to do more high profile matches. Okay. So I need to go, like I need to wrestle whoever the best of the best is on the independent circuit and just try and get as many of those matches under my belt as I can. And because they'll see those matches. Okay. So in many ways, it's kind of like uh, MMA, like when guys are on the um, uh, pro circuit, not UFC level, but they, they win their regions and they keep moving up. And it's like, that's how they get noticed. Like Tristan is a prime example of that, right? He like, he worked through everyone. He became yep. champion there. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is the guy. We'll now move him to the big leagues. Same thing. Yes. Okay. So like they're looking for like a big thing is like when they release guys and they come back on the independent circuit, like, yeah. I have to be in tune with whatever promotion that is to try and get that match and to try and go out there and just work guys that have been at that level or guys that are on the cusp of, you know, making it to the next, next level. That's how I'll get more notoriety and just notice more. 
Well, I think what we should do is we should, I'm going to put together a promo, but we should make a viral thing that, that uh, Vince McMahon, Triple H, William Regal, Prince Albert, I'm going to tag all these guys. They need to give relentless John Atlas a shot because he is, uh, he has a fascinating story. He obviously it's, he's true to form. He is an athlete that will keep going. So I'm not going to cut the promo for you, but I, man, John, it's, I'm telling you, John Atlas is where it's at. So I love it, Mike. It's so good. Um, so that's going to bring me to the next portion here of the podcast. So you've told your kind of story, you've done yep. all the shit. So now we're going to talk about wrestling, uh, its pedigree, and some things. Now, you talked about your finishing move. What's your finishing move that you typically do? So when I was a playboy, uh, the finishing move I did was the, uh, the one-night stand, but it was a, kind of a tribute to Shawn Michaels, and I would I do the super kick. Okay. And um, I've, I've changed it since then um, because – Everybody does a super kick and everybody tries to emulate it. So we're talking and about chin music? Yes. Yeah. So like a lot of a lot of things that you'll see on the independent circuit is like people just throw away moves. Um, so people do super kicks just to do them. So how does your super kick differ from anything else that you'll see? So I'll have a match on a show. Yeah. And I'll go out and I'll do it and I'll use it as my finish. But then the match after me, they'll be using it right in the opening. Like, right. oh, shoot some off, super kick, boom. And then they'll keep going. So yeah. it makes the move less impactful. Mm -hmm. And it really throws it away and the audience becomes desensitized to it. And they're just like, okay, well, we've seen it before. Like, how is this any different? Um, so I've recently changed it. And right now I'm working on doing um, uh, a like a version of a pile driver. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple signature move questions here. Okay. Okay. I, I want you to tell me the wrestler that is associated with this uh, move. Some of them are easy. Some of them are a little. <laughs> here we go. The All Mandible right. Claw. Man, Mick Foley. Good buddy. There we go. Um, how about Styles Clash? That's that's AJ Styles right yes. there. The phenomenal uh, one. Yep. How about this is attributed to a few people, so you can name any one of these, but the spear. Uh I'll go with the first person who I saw do it was Goldberg. Yeah, who followed up? Any other guys you can think of that do the spear? Uh Edge, uh yep. Roman Reigns currently yes! does it. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, Roman Reigns is is a relative of who? Um, Yokozuna and uh, I don't know if it, like if you're thinking The Rock, I don't think their bloodline is the same. Is it through but, marriage? Uh, sorry, is it through marriage then? Because I thought they were related somehow. I don't. I think The Rock has a different uh, bloodline. Okay. Like, uh, like the the ongoing joke in kind of pro wrestling is like, if you're Samoan, one, you're awesome at wrestling, and everyone, like all the Samoans are all somehow related. Right. But like that lineage, like if you really look at it, the lineage is a different, like it's a bit different. Okay. Uh, how about the Hurricanrana? Who is that uh, associated to? 
Herkin, uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. Yep. Um, which wrestler made the ankle lock famous? Kurt Angle. Yes. Uh, Olympic before, hero. And before that, an MMA guy who did it as well. Do you remember? He was in wrestling. Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. Excellent. Who did the attitude adjustment? You can't see me. It's John Cena. There we go. Who, which big man in the WWF was able to pull off a moonsault? Big man that was able to pull off a moonsault? Big guy. Yep. So, just moonsault, like, we're going backwards over the top rope. Yeah. And we're talking 300 plus. 300 plus. Yes. Who did this? Oh, Vader. Yes! Oh, so nice. Okay, he's killing it. Okay, next Later. one. Which wrestler, one of the most famous wrestlers of all time, the figure four leg lock, came out of? Woo! The nature boy, Ric Flair. Who was, uh, who attributed to another move, a uh, big one called the Jack Hammer? Bill Goldberg. Yes. Um, one of our favorites, of course, the DDT. Jake the Snake. Um, how about the F5? Oh, Brock Lesnar. Yes. Uh, He's coming back to MMA. Yeah, I know. Uh, the sharpshooter, obviously best Canadian out there. And who is that? The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, in, in 30 seconds or less, I want you to describe Brett the Hitman Hart's handshake. Handshake? Yes. Um firm uh yeah i'd say, I'd say firm he, he, he gives a firm handshake but didn't you tell me that some wrestlers don't shake very hard is isn't that a well that was that was what regan show regan told me and what it was was that like they'll go for that limp wrist yeah like because apparently back in the day like if you came in with a firm handshake like that was uh, that that was like the type of work you you were in. Like so, if you came with a hard handshake, like oh, he's stiff in the ring because it. he gave a hard handshake. Okay. But a lot of people like a lot of people frown on that. Like if you're gonna shake someone's hand, you shake someone's hand like a man. Got it. Okay. Uh, the frog splash attributed to who? Eddie Guerrero. Anyone else you can think of that used to do it? Uh, Mr. Monday Night, Mr. Pay Per View, Rob Van Dam. Fantastic. You're killing this, my friend. Uh, pedigree. It's time to play the game, Triple H. Yes, the flying elbow. The original flying elbow. Ooh, yeah. The nice. macho man. Who did the jackknife powerbomb? <laughs> Big Daddy Cool Diesel. Nice. Kevin Nash. Uh, Tombstone is attributed to, obviously... Oh, the dead man who just retired, I believe. Uh, the Undertaker. Yes, he did. Diamond Cutter. DDP. Yeah. Diamond Dallas Page. Okay. Uh, they also stole, he stole a theme song from Nirvana. He did DDP. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, wow. Okay. Two more. Yeah. So when they were running WCW, he ended up using the theme song from Nirvana. Gotcha. Uh, sweet Chin Music is? Shawn Michaels. And the last one, the Stone Cold Stunner. 
the, the Texas rattlesnake himself trap you on that stack of dimes you call it next old cold Steve Austin so Mike Mazursky you get a hundred percent you didn't you didn't miss one of those so um what is considered I hate to say this but I'm going to put you on the spot what's considered the worst finishing move in wrestling in your opinion the worst finishing move in pro wrestling. Oh, oh. I'm going to go with the sleeper hold. Oh, interesting. Who used yeah, to, no, who is popular for doing the sleeper hold? Roddy Piper. Yeah. Just, just shake him. You remember they get it and just do this and the guy. And then to lift yeah, up the arm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, it was like uh, two and then three and then three times the arm goes down. That's it. That's but it. Uh, they changed the rule. It, it's funny that influence UFC's had on pro wrestling. Yeah. Um, to make it kind of more le- legitimate. So they, they don't know. There's no longer like the three, uh, three strikes you're out type of thing. It's like, if you're if you're rendered kind of like unconscious, they call it right there. Yeah. How about the big leg drop from Hulk Hogan? Do you, do you consider that a good finishing move? It it's the build up to the move. Okay. So it's it's Hogan hulking up. It's him doing the finger point, like what's she gonna do? Shooting you off the big boot and like. By the time he gives the big boot, the crowd is at their absolute peak. Yeah. And he just comes and drops the leg. Like, like they're just ready. They're, they're screaming. Have you ever worked a match where someone's been stiff and they start shooting on you or vice versa? Anything like that ever happen? Uh, nope. Like, I've had guys, like, that have uh, stiffed me. Um, but, like, nothing, nothing to the point where, like, I couldn't handle myself. Or nothing to the point where, like, a guy was like, I'm going to shoot on him or anything like that. No. Which wrestlers uh, uh, that you've heard of are notorious for being uh, rough in the ring? Goldberg. Uh, He, you know, he he took out the hitman with that uh, kick to the head. I always heard Bradshaw was. I like, I think it was with Bradshaw. It was about earning his respect. Like he was taking it seriously. Yeah. Like if you dished it back, okay. Like that, that's just the way it was going to be. Like if you're just going to sit there and let him beat you up, he was going to beat you up. But to earn his respect, you'd have to kind of give it back. And if you gave it back to him, then you kind of get on that working relationship. Then you kind of go from there. So I think that like with a lot of those guys, it's about earning their respect. Um, there's one thing, like, there's one, there's the way about going about it. There's another thing about, like, just teeing off on somebody yeah. that's just giving you their body, which is just reckless and stupid. Right. Who would you consider, uh, like, when you think of tag teams, there's been some amazing tag teams uh, in the WWF and WWE. What ones, what are the top three that just come to mind and go, I just loved them? Brainbusters, Heart Foundation, New Age Outlaws. Okay. Um, I was always a fan of, uh, was it, what did they call it? Was it the APA? Is that what they called them? 
themselves. Yeah, Ac- Acolyte Protection Agency. It's just I, their their promos were so amazing. Them playing poker and stuff. I just I loved it. So good. Um, wow, crazy. So that's tag team. So who would you consider the top three best wrestlers that have been in the ring in the last thirty years? That just technically just really good to watch. Define what's your definition of wrestler. Uh, I would say uh, ability to actually know wrestling moves, the athleticism that they do, uh, just the overall. I mean, there's big like big guys are great wrestlers, but they're not great wrestlers. I'm talking about the ones that are really able to move and just technically really sound. Last 30 years, I'm going to put Shawn Michaels. Yep. Um... 30 years, that's a long time. Uh, I'm going to go Shawn Michaels. I'm going to go Hulk Hogan. And I'm going to go... Bret Hart. And so you're basing this on their knowledge of the ring and things like that, not just... Because I'm thinking people who are more like they, they talk about guys who are just like super like really good in the ring, able to maneuver in the ring. Okay, so you're talking like you're kind of looking at it differently than I am. So yeah. I'm looking like I can put Sean I put Shawn Michaels in there because he can do he can in my opinion, he could do it all. Yes. Um and he could probably still do he could probably still do it all. Um and he told great stories, he cut great promos. I put Hulk Hogan in there because I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Like not tech, he might not be technically sound, but he didn't need to be. Yeah. Um, people bought tickets all over the world to see Hulk Hogan. Right. 85,000 people sold out the Silverdome to see Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like when you talk about box office and big numbers, like Hulk Hogan. Uh, same could also be said like Stone Cold Steve Austin Stone Cold Steve Austin sold tickets and people wanted to see Stone Cold Steve Austin now when he first started his career he was actually a very good technical wrestler Yeah, Um, Yeah. he was awesome through and through but he had that neck injury where he had to change his style up and he became more of a brawler Mm -hmm. and but as soon as as soon as the glass breaks the crowd goes absolutely nuts. Yeah. And to have like, I, I will never know the feeling of having 15,000 people eating out of the palm of your hand, but yeah. like to have that feeling like, Oh my God, it, it's quite a rush. So out of those wrestlers that you've talked about. So, I mean, I, now I see where you're kind of going, how you think that they're, you know, they're good and stuff like that. Now the eighties obviously had a ton of great wrestlers. Um, yeah. Some of them lasted a long time. Some of them didn't. Um, so a question for you, because you're obviously in the wrestling and what's the most common injury you see in wrestling? A lot of torn biceps. Okay. Uh, a lot of muscles being torn, uh, torn biceps, knee injuries, knee injuries can be a big one too. Um, even on the independent circuit, there's like, you you see a lot of guys wearing knee braces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you, I'd say torn bicep. Yourself? 
or sorry how do you protect yourself in the ring like from getting injuries i mean obviously how you move is really important and your partner as well right yeah but it's also like knowing your limit and staying within it um like you want to do this at the highest of all high levels which whoever to like to anybody that's different for everybody but like I think everybody gets into this wanting to either work for WWE or work for a, a top promotion where you're getting paid to do this on a regular. Uh, but so you have to cons- conserve your body and you have to watch the kind of risks that you're going to, you're willing to take. Now, like I'm 6'2", 225. I'm not going to be going to the top rope and doing a moonsault to the floor. Right. Cause one, I don't like the, it's a big, that's a lot of mass. And two, I don't trust a lot of people to catch me. Like I think nine times out of 10, I'm just going to end up splat on the concrete and no, I don't want to do that. So it's just like, it's knowing risks and like, you really have to be an athlete to do this. Like you can't just, you can't be out of shape. Uh, You have to, you have to be able to go because again, like the ring, the ring's a bit wobbly. So like if you take a step and if you, you don't have your balance, you could easily tear your knee doing that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people just like, they think cause they see it on TV. It looks easy. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll dabble in it. I'll make, do it on weekends or something like that. But like, they're not doing it. A dis- they're doing it a disservice because they're not taking it seriously. They're not in shape. They're not athletes. Um, And you, like I said, you really have to be an athlete to do this stuff. So if you were going to have a dinner party and you got to invite any wrestler you wanted to, you know, 12 people, 10 people around a dinner table and you, you're hosting, who are you inviting to that dinner? How many guys do I get to invite? I don't know. Let's say 10. 10? Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock. Um, Bret Hart, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Vince McMahon, um, Randy Savage, Triple H, John Cena. One more. One more. Uh, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. Wow. There's one out of left field. Didn't expect that one. Well, I actually kind of did because I can see where that comes. So there's your dinner party. Amazing. So Mike, you became a new dad recently, didn't you? I did. uh, September 29th at 4.43 p.m., I welcomed a new addition to my family. I have a lovely daughter, uh, Brooklyn Page Mazursky. Nice. Well done. You've you've been through a lot, my friend, and you're going to continue to keep going. You definitely are relentless, and you're one of my most favorite humans. I love you to bits. I wish you the best success, and catching up with you is just, it's brought so much joy to me. I can't even tell you, buddy. Oh, thank you so much. Likewise, uh, hopefully we can do this again, maybe a part two. <laughs> I'd love to do a part two. We'll get into it more. And uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll ask the listening audience to send us some questions uh, about wrestling and stuff. Can We can really go down the rabbit hole. That'd be super fun. 
Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. Well, everyone, this was Mike Mazursky, a.k.a. Relentless John Atlas. I'm going to let him close it off here on the Torvis podcast. So take it away, Relentless. Thank you so much, Ari, for having me on your podcast. Again, this is the Relentless John Atlas coming to you live. Let's do another part two. Let's bring it home. Let's do it big. Let's do it bad. Let's do it proud. All right, Ari, I'll take you. I'll see you later, buddy. Thanks very much. Until next time, everyone, remember, keep on geeking on.